Uh, it's good to be with you guys tonight. Um, I'm looking forward very much to being with you uh, once a month on a Sunday night and uh, trying to still figure out some of the details on if it's going to be every third. I don't know some of those details at this point. Uh, but I do know, Lord willing, I'll be back in two weeks on December 4th, and so we're just kind of trying to take it a couple months at a time and, and figure it out as we do that. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, what is one of my favorite visions in the Bible. Maybe to frame what we're looking at tonight, uh, have you ever had a time where you were so discouraged and your faith felt so low that you, you just felt like you were spiritually dead, spiritually depressed. Try to imagine living in the first century and the kinds of persecution that the Christians would have received. Maybe uh, you get together on Sunday with the Christians and you're, you're kind of encouraged by the time that you spent together, and then Monday rolls around and like Hebrews chapter 10 says, you find out that your, your property's been seized from you. And you're trying to figure out how to deal with that mess of a situation. A couple days later, you find out that, that that friend of yours that you worship with, that he was just publicly executed because he was a Christian. And you're like, well, this is a pretty difficult week. Friday comes around and you find out that your mom and dad are really concerned that you become a Christian. They're worried about the societal impact that it could have on you. You could end up dead. And it's this constant bombardment of being discouraged. How much do you think a Christian in the first century would look forward to meeting with Christians? How much would it mean to them? And when they would get together, what kinds of passages would they look at? They didn't have all of the New Testament written down. And so when they would come together, they would have to draw some kind of courage and some kind of inspiration from passages like this one that we're going to look at. Sometimes when I study through the book of Acts with people, I'll begin the study in the book of Acts with this text. Because I believe that the book of Acts is showing everything being fulfilled that this passage is talking about. But if, you're, if you've had a rough last couple days, if you feel like you're spiritually depressed right now, uh, think about what a first century Christian could have gained from a vision like this. Let's go ahead and read Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. And this is going to be the text from which we take our thoughts. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from my graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now this text breaks up naturally into two sections. Verses 1 through 10 is the the vision itself. And then verses 11 through 14 is the description of what this vision is all about. And when you look at verses 11 to 14, you can see that the audience to whom Ezekiel is speaking is very discouraged here. In verse 11, this vision that has these bones that are scattered all over the place and they're dried out, this is how the nation of Israel is thinking about themselves. We're dried up. Our hope is gone. Everything's fallen apart. We also know in verse 14 that they're currently exiled. In verse 14, it says that God's going to bring them back to their own land. They've been exiled because of their sin, which is what the first part of the book of Ezekiel was all about. And so, at this point, can you imagine being an Israelite? You're in exile, you're in Babylon, and you've got this prophet among you who keeps getting visions from God, and then he goes and disseminates the information to the Israelites, and they, they're wanting to get all these visions from him. At this point, these people are saying that we're indeed cut off. Uh, why would they have such hopelessness? Well, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Abraham that through your lineage, there's going to be somebody that's going to come and be a blessing to the whole world. And we've waited, and we've waited, and that guy hasn't really fully come. When we thought it was the days of Solomon, maybe, he still ended up messing up. And then King David was told that he was going to have a son that would reign on his throne forever. And we've been waiting for that guy, and and maybe we thought it was going to be Josiah for a little bit, and it didn't end up being him. These people are in a low place. So it's fitting that in verse 1, this vision takes place in a valley. What is it that's going to solve this problem for the people? What is it that's going to take them out of exile? What is it that's going to take them out of their spiritual depression, if we can use that term, is going to be the Spirit. In this text, the words breath or spirit or wind, all it's used ten times in this text, and it's the same Hebrew word ruach, talking about the Spirit of God. Um, How do you know if something has life? Is if it can breathe. If something's not breathing anymore, it doesn't have life. And in this text, Ezekiel's saying, well, one day, the Spirit's going to come, and it's going to take you who are dead and give you renewed life. It's going to take people that are so beyond discouraged, and it's going to cause them to have a new kind of way of living, a new purpose all over again. So if Ezekiel 37 talks about this, and it shows you this vivid picture of the Spirit coming, The chapter right before this in Ezekiel 36 gives you this promise that it's going to come and change people. 
So you've got the promise in chapter 36, you've got the vision in chapter 37, but look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I remember when Samantha was converted, and she started coming to this new church with me, and she had a relative that had asked her about this new church that she was going to. She said, is this new church that you're going to spirit-filled? And now when she, what she meant by the church being spirit-filled was, do people do things like this? Like, when, you're, when they're in the assembly, do they do all kinds of things that, like, the Spirit's taking over them in some kind of way? Which, by the way, the last part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If you ever say that the Holy Spirit's causing me to do all kinds of things like this, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. Well, how do you know if a church is Spirit-filled, at least just from this passage? If you're careful to do everything that God has asked you to do, so for these discouraged people, the Spirit's going to come, God's going to take the Pharaoh-like stony heart out of them, and He's going to give them a heart of flesh, in this context, flesh being a good thing, it's one that God can plant seeds into, and He's going to make these people be different. Now, this vision that Ezekiel receives about the Spirit being given to these dry bones might be especially scary for Ezekiel, because we know in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3, the word, of the, Lord that, the word of the Lord that came to Ezekiel, the priest. What do we know about priests and being around bones and dead bodies? It's something that they couldn't do as priests. They couldn't associate with. But here in this vision, try to imagine this scene. In the spirit, Ezekiel's transported in some way or another, and he's brought into this, the middle of this valley. Have you ever gone to a movie, the movie theaters in the middle of the day, and then you walk out when it's still light out and your eyes have to adjust to everything? Here's Ezekiel being brought into this valley, and he's adjusting to his surroundings, I can imagine, and as he adjusts to it, he starts looking around, and he sees all of these human bones everywhere. You can imagine that there's like swords and shields glimmering in the hot sun as if there was this battle that took place where a bunch of people were slain. And Ezekiel, in verse 2, he starts to walk around among the bones. Can you imagine like, and I don't imagine that it's like a perfect skeleton that's in one spot. I, I imagine like all the bones are just mixed up all together in my imagination. So he starts walking around among them, looking down at all of them, and he, it says that there were very many of them, very many bones. An adult human has 206 bones in their body. Multiply that by however many thousands of people were slain here. And as he continues observing and looking around, he sees that these bones are very dry. I've read before that for bones to become dry, even in something like a casket, can take up to 40 years. I don't know how they figure those kinds of things out. But these bones have been scorched in the sun. And I'm sorry to do this to your imagination, but I imagine that if you were to step on it, it would have crunched like a Cheeto. Like, that's the condition of these bones. So he's taking it all in, walking all around, and God breaks the silence here, and he asks Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? If somebody were to ask you that question, 
hey, can these bones that you've spent some time walking around them, you can see that they're just beyond dead. Maybe you'd think, well, God, in the time of Elijah and Elisha, rose some people from the dead. So Yeah, but those people still had like flesh and organs, and it wasn't too long uh, after they had died that they were brought back to life. These bones are beyond any hope, you would think. But Ezekiel has this great answer where he says, Oh Lord God, you know. And imagine him like looking back down at the bones, looking at God wherever God is. You know if these things can come back to life. Is that going to be your answer if God asked you a question like that? And with that answer that Ezekiel gives, he's then given some instructions that don't make any sense. And God says, okay, great answer, Ezekiel. I want you to start preaching to the bones and like sinew and flesh and muscle, and all these things are going to come back to them. Can you imagine Ezekiel getting those instructions? Like, if it's me, I'm, I've got like a weird face, like, okay, okay, speak to the, like, maybe Ezekiel has had a dead audience before when he preached, but they've never been this dead before. Uh, can, if you were to see somebody, like in the middle of a desert, talking to a bunch of dead bones, and trying to like command them, we would all say that that person's crazy. But, did you notice how verse 7 started? Words that are easy to overlook and words that are filled with faith, so I prophesied. So I prophesied. I started speaking to these bones and they started like rattling a little bit. And then I imagine like magnets coming together. All the right pieces are sliding across the sand and they're getting connected back to the body that they originally came from. And then the sinew and the flesh and the skin come upon them. Can you imagine Ezekiel as he's preaching? I didn't think that these words were going to have this kind of power. I just trusted that God was going to do what he wanted to do. But look what's happening. And all the, as they start to look like a human again, I can imagine Ezekiel looking down at some of these bodies and he sees there's no, they're, they're not breathing yet though. There's no animation in them. So God tells him again, I want you to preach again to them and they're going to come back to life. Does this remind you of any other place in the Bible where there was a body that had to have something breathed into it for it to come to life? In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Just as Adam was created, it's as if Ezekiel is recreating these people, and you can picture them as, as Ezekiel preaches to them again. They start they have they have animation now, and their eyes are opening, and their mouth is open, and they're looking at each other. They're picking up their swords and their shields, and when they stand up, what do they become? An exceedingly great army. They don't become a country cl club. They don't just become some friends that just hang out from time to time. They become an exceedingly great army that I imagine being in their proper ranks, knowing how to use their swords, knowing what their mission and what their purpose is. So again, imagine being in the first century. And you come together, and this last week was difficult. I'm struggling with all kinds of discouraging things. What would some takeaways from a, a vision like this be? I'm going to suggest a few things from this. I'd suggest, first of all, this story says something about the nature of our exile. Some people have said, well, what? they've wondered, well, when, when did this take place? 
And uh, some have suggested, well, this is talking about the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, when he sends the Israelites back from captivity so that they can go and rebuild. And that's, in a sense, when the graves of Israel were opened. They can leave the death of Persia and go back and rebuild. And maybe there's a shadow fulfillment in some of that. But do the na- does the nation of Israel in Ezra and Nehemiah become like this great army that has been given the Spirit? No, you don't see that sort of thing happening there. So I would suggest that this scene has something to do with the true exile, the, the true captivity. Uh, when the nation of Israel was taken into captivity, 2 Kings 17 says it a couple times, they were taken away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. The captivity of the Old Testament is the foreshadowing of us being separated from God in a spiritual kind of way. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 parallels this chapter in a lot of ways. But Ephesians 2 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Do you see yourself before you ever became a Christian as somebody that was completely dead in that valley, your bones scattered all over the place? And there was no hope left for you unless something from the outside came and blessed you. If your picture of your life before you ever became a Christian was, I I look at myself as I was like a pretty good person, and I just needed some minor tweaking, like I needed to stop using certain kind of edgy words, and I needed to just stop, you know, uh, look watching some of those like PG thirteen movies, and there was some inappropriate, and I've just kind of had a minor tweak. But I really wouldn't say that I was like a super bad person. It's not really thinking soberly. The picture in the scriptures is that you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. You ever seen dead people walk? Well, in this verse, they are. Not just that, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, a little bit further on, in this chapter, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you remember that time when you had no hope? And maybe you wouldn't say that I had no hope. Maybe what you'd say is, well, I had a lot of false hopes. I put my hope in my career. I put my hope in my, my beauty. I put my hope in my money. I have put my hope in FTX. And all of these things come crashing down and nothing ever ends up working the way that we wanted it to. Do you, do you remember? Look at the first word there in verse 12. Remember. How do you know if you have a good memory, biblically speaking? Is it if you can remember book, chapter, and verse? You can quote verses left and right. Is that what it means to have a good memory? Maybe in our culture, that's how we might define that. Do you remember that story a few chapters back in Ezekiel 16 where the nation of Israel is described as this girl that was left on the side of the road for dead? And then God passes by her, not to ignore her, but to give her attention that gives her life. And he says to her, live. And then she grows and becomes beautiful, the age for marriage. And then God spreads his wings over her and he marries her and makes her beautiful. And then with this newfound beauty that she has, she begins cheating on God by alluring people with this beauty that God bestowed upon her. And you look at a scene like that and ask yourself, well, what was going through her mind? 
And maybe the better question to ask is what was not going through her mind? Ezekiel 16.22 says, In all your whorings and all your abominations, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were wallowing in your blood. Do you remember where you've come from? Do you remember that you've come from this valley and apart from the working of God, there was no hope for you? This pictures something about our exile, but it also pictures something about the nature of our return from exile. Um, This nation in this text is given life and they're given hope. Whereas before they were dead and there was nothing that they could have done to save themselves, it had to be the coming of the Son of Man. We'll say more about that in just a moment. Ezekiel comes and he breathes upon these people. And now, as this text says a couple times, we know the Lord. We know that the Lord is God. There's this mutual relationship that they now have with one another. But so there's a lot that we could say just about the new life and the hope that they have. But I want to say, I want to zero in a little bit about this imagery of them becoming a great army. They're made into a great army. They've got all of these soldiers that I imagine, again, being in their formation. One of the pictures that the Bible gives of the Christian is that you're a soldier. First and Second Timothy gives that imagery. Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the armor of God. You get that imagery in those kinds of passages as well. What's the duty of a soldier? Well, we saw another way to say that, going back to Ezekiel 36, is that you're careful to obey everything that your commander has told you. You Imagine if you're in the army, some kind of armed forces, and your leader, your commanding officer, says something like, I want you to go across that river, and I want you to set up some, some uh, guns over there, whatever they would ask you to do. You go, you know, I just really don't know that that would be in my best interest. I don't know if that, I really like, feel like doing that right now. Can you ask me maybe tomorrow, and I might get back to you on that one. You don't have the right to say that kind of thing. If the question was asked, are you filled with the Spirit? The only way that you'd really know that, at least in these texts, is whether or not you're submitting to the things that God has asked you to submit to. In, in first, Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about this imagery of being like a soldier, and no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Can you think of some civilian pursuits that would get in the way of us being soldiers, maybe like at this time especially in our country? Wasn't there some like big thing that happened a couple weeks ago where everybody went to these booths and like filled out things and like made a big deal about it and we're like waiting for counting to happen still and all this? Have you seen how much Christians have gotten amped up about politics over the last few years? Does that seem like it could possibly be a civilian pursuit that has distracted people? from what our actual purpose is to spread the gospel and help people come to know the Lord. It's not just that we're careful to do everything God has asked us to do. What does a righteous army do? Uh, They bring liberation. In Ephesians 6, verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. One of the things that a righteous army does is they take the sword to those that are held captive, to the ones that are holding those people captive, and they give them release. My grandpa was in World War II, 
And he, he didn't do OSS work per se, but he was just as good as OSS from all the stories that he told us. And he didn't tell us a whole lot of stories. We got little snippets of little things from time to time. And he just died about eight months ago or so. And he never just sat down in, with a recorder and gave us the whole panoramic story. But one of the things that he did tell us that happened was that he and several other guys went into Germany and they were one of the ones literally breaking down the gate of Dachau. And when they entered the concentration camp, what did they see? A bunch of skin and bones. A bunch of people that were just beyond recognition. How do you think about people that live around you, that work around you? I remember when I was living here near Brentwood, one of the struggles that I developed was I would drive past where the Brentwood church building was and I saw the guy that started Taco Bell, the house that he has over there and the mansions all over the place. And I had times where I thought, why is it that these people have got all the nice things and I don't got nothing? Who are the ones that are in captivity? Who are the ones that are actually starving and don't have anything? Who are the soldiers that God has set in different cities throughout the world to give liberation to those people? Speaking of the time that I lived here, I'll never forget on a Saturday morning, I got a text message from somebody named Sam Carter, one of my friends in Minnesota, you guys know Sam, one of my friends in Minnesota. He sent me a text that said Chuck was baptized. And I called him immediately and I said, who's Chuck? And he said, it's your father-in-law. I said, there's no way he was baptized. He said, well, he was. I just saw it. You know how ashamed I was in that moment? If, if I was Ezekiel, and just picture yourself as Ezekiel. Picture the person in your life that you think is the least likely to listen to the gospel. If God was to ask you, hey, whatever your name is, could those bones live? Would you have the same response as Ezekiel? Oh Lord God, you know. Or would it be, there's no way that's ever going to happen? And in fact, if I were to go start talking to some of those people, I know other people that think I would be crazy for talking to those dry bones. But Ezekiel's faith says, you know, so I prophesied. Who is it in your life that needs liberation? That needs to get out of that spiritual concentration camp? God takes these people out of exile, not just so that they can be comfortable, not just so that they can sit back and go, well, I got my hope now. It's to give you a whole new purpose. How is all this possible? How can God take people that are dry bones in a valley and piece them back together and make them have this kind of mission? How does it happen? Three times in this text, the one that makes the difference is called Son of Man. Does this remind you of anybody else in the Bible that went by Son of Man who came and he had life-giving words to give to people that were in a valley of dry bones? Sounds like Jesus who left the glories of heaven and came here to a world filled with people who were dead. And like he says in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In the context, Jesus has fed these people some bread, and they come back the next day not having perceived the deeper meaning of the sign. And Jesus has to say, all right, guys, that bread that you had was just a sign for you to know that the words that I speak, 
that spirit, those came from my breath. And those words give you life if you'll take them in and make it your greatest passion. A few chapters later, in John chapter 20, Jesus does this strange thing. On resurrection day, John chapter 20, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so am I, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Spirit. If, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Can you imagine how strange this scene is? Jesus, in his resurrected body, talks about sending them out, and they go, okay, we're going to be sent out, and then, and then he goes, <sighs> and then if you forgive sins, it's forgiven them. If they're withheld, it's withheld from people. What is he alluding to here? I think he's alluding to Ezekiel 37, where just as this Son of Man breathed and preached things that brought life to these people, Jesus is now telling these apostles, I'm giving you this Spirit to disseminate to other people that's going to help them have life, and it will also be the words that condemn people. You want to know one of the things that I'm sure every one of you do every day? Before you go to bed, middle of the day, something like that, you take your phone and you plug it in. Because it would be such a bad thing if your phone died. What happens when you disconnect from the life-giving words of the Son of Man? We start to atrophy. We lose our skin. We lose our muscle. We lose our sinew. And then we're fallen down in the middle of a desert. And we need words to be breathed back into us. I feel like one of the applications that I get sick and tired of having to make as a preacher of the gospel is that you need to be studying your Bible. Like, this is one of those applications that it's like, I hate that I have to say it because everybody just expects people, preachers, to have to say this kind of thing. But do you see how important it is in this text? Without the breath of God, without the words that God has given. I've seen statistics recently on how many hours a day people are on their phones. How many hours a day people watch TV? Do, do we really live as if these are the words that we need to come out of our spiritual depression, to be given the purpose that we need to be able to live? We know that theoretically, and we would say in a church setting like this, yeah, i got to be reading it and it's really important to me, but does your life really reflect that it's important to you? Without it, you atrophy and die. And ultimately, Jesus himself went into the valley of death. If he had not descended into this valley and spoken these words, there was nothing that these bones could have done. There's nothing they could have obeyed. There was nothing they could have done to bring themselves back to life. If Jesus never would have come here, no amount of obedience or knowledge or wisdom or wealth ever would have given you hope. But the Son of Man has come and he's given words that give us life. When does this start for somebody? Can you imagine going to Sabbath school as a Jew and you're learning these things every Saturday about the Old Testament, what it's looking forward to with the coming of the Spirit, and then Peter preaching to a Jewish audience and in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would that mean to that, those people? 
we're that valley of dry bones. And if we repent and we're baptized, the Spirit's going to take my dead spirit and raise it up and give it new life. And that's the beginning. And I need to keep taking those words in continually so that I don't atrophy and die. And those people that are raised up, they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall be the army that brings liberation to those who are lost. Is this a description of your mission in life? If you lived in the first century and you were having a tough week, could you see how a vision like this and coming together and discussing these things would revive your sense of meaning and purpose and revive in you a greater need to meditate on the Scriptures and what it is that the Lord's done for you? We're about to sing a song. Brad, did you pick what song it is? It's going to be on the PowerPoint. Okay, the song's going to be on the PowerPoint. I appreciate your good attention tonight. If there's anything that needs to be done for you in your faith, there's a couple things that you can do. You can either talk to somebody here before you leave, or we... The option is always to come forward, which I know takes some courage to do something like that. But if there's somebody here that's struggling with something, don't leave here without getting reconnected to God or connecting to God for the first time if you haven't done it yet. If there's anything that we can do for you, please come forward while we stand, while we sing.